Choose Linux, episode 26, for January 9th, 2020. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 26. And we're going to be talking about how to explain what Linux and open source is. We've all just been spending time with family for the holidays And that awkward conversation keeps coming up. So what do you two say when people ask what you do? Honestly, I I think I try to avoid answering the question because I always feel that there's just so much that I do besides, you know, just the podcasting and, you know, I go out and do talks and everything. But when my parents are asked, they always say, oh, she works with computers, which always ends up with somebody asking me to fix something and me (laughs) looking like a fool because I have no idea what they're running. And most of the time, it's Windows. And I can't even set up firewall rules on a Windows system. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. So it's been really hard to try to broach the subject with my parents that, you know, I, like, yes, I work in computers, but no, I'm com- I can't fix the computer. I am completely useless when it comes to our family. I feel like I'm a little lucky in that both my dad and his brother are computer people. And while they're very focused on Windows, they're at least aware of kind of what makes an operating system. Where I have trouble is with, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins who don't share that same affinity. And I end up essentially telling them that it's an alternative operating system, sort of like what they're used to with Windows, but completely different. And then I'm kind of not sure where to go from there a lot of times, because these are completely non-technical people. And trying to explain, well, it's kind of like Windows, but it doesn't have the same software, and it's built entirely by community, and Uh, I don't know, like something gets lost in translation. So I'm really looking forward to having this talk and seeing, you know, how I can improve things. Well, I always start with, hey, you know, if you go and buy a laptop, it's running Windows. And if you go and buy a Mac, then it's going to be running a different operating system and things are a little bit different. Well, they are operating systems. And what Linux is, is a third alternative that works on either computer. That's the kind of real basic high level because I think you have to explain what an operating system is first before you can even start with what open source is. So maybe we start there. Like One of the key conversations that I've tried to have with my kids um, is what is an OS? Because they're being raised in an area where everybody's got a Mac and everybody has an iPhone. And obviously a Mac is better because a Mac costs more and you've got to go to this pristine store in the mall to have it. And that's what all the cool kids have. And so it was really hard to try to deprogram them from that idea. Like Windows wasn't even in the conversation. That's what old people in the school use. So bringing in that there's this free alternative to them didn't mean anything. It almost made it like it was worse because it was free. When it comes to even my 10-year-old, we've had these conversations and I broke it down even further to say, this is what the Linux kernel is. And I talked to her about how the Linux kernel helped speak her language down to the hardware so that it could do what she wanted it to do. And then we kind of built up from there. 
but it's difficult to have those conversations with an adult because it almost feels like you're talking down to them. What experience have you guys had with that? I don't think I've ever fully tried to explain how it all works. I think for that very reason that you would feel like you're talking down to them and they don't have that natural curiosity that kids have. Although I've tried to explain it to my niece and she's just not interested. She is just only interested in Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and her phone. She barely uses her laptop only when she has to do stuff for school. So the idea of getting her into Linux is just never, ever going to happen, I don't think. Well, and I think that's part of the problem is that a lot of people don't consider this as something that's really necessarily applicable to them. That They don't have that curiosity or that desire to go beyond what came in the tin, as it were, you know, what what was on the computer when they bought it. Because most people, they don't build their own computer. They don't install their own operating system. They just go to a store, buy a box, come home and boot up the laptop and it walks them through setting it up. And it could be Windows, it could be whatever. And a lot of people just aren't going to care so long as it gives them a web browser and gets them where they need to go. That's fair because my kids are interested in it since they they see me doing it every day. They get dragged to Linux conferences and, you know, around a bunch of geeky people. I think that it's been kind of something I want to broach, though, because there is a part of me that really does want my family to understand that just because I can't fix their computer doesn't mean that I'm you know, any less technical or any less good at my job. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a personal thing of wanting people to understand why it is that I'm excited about what I do. Well, and for me, it's less about the internals of what makes the kernel work, and it's more about the community and how it all came to be and how it all functions as far as the social aspect. Well, one approach that I often take is to explain that they use Linux every day. If you're using Facebook, if you're using Google, if you're using Amazon, you are using Linux because that's what those websites are running on. And I think if you get their head around the idea that the cloud and most of the web and the internet runs on Linux, that's a pretty good start. And you can add in that all of the top supercomputers in the world also run Linux. Yeah, and then you can point out that an Android phone runs Linux as well. Exactly, or that little kiosk display in the store. The fact that it's so scalable and so ubiquitous is a real testament to the power of Linux, and I think that is something that a lot of people can recognize in the world around them. One of the problems that I've run into, though, explaining to them like how often they interact with it is it gets even more confusing for them. Because when you interact with a Windows system, you pretty much are going to have the same packaging, right? Like even if it's Windows, I don't know, Vista to Windows 10, you still kind of have the same face to it. So people learn to recognize it. But because we have so many different distributions and they don't all look alike, it's hard for them to begin to comprehend that. I think that's less of a problem these days because of mobile interfaces, because people understand, you know, normal people see a laptop and a phone as being very different. And so it's not that much of a stretch to think that there could be different interfaces on a laptop. Well, and not to mention that Apple has been doing things their own way. And granted, they have their own standard look that's been around since OS X. But 
people can see that there's more than just one way, especially now that Apple has become so dominant in the field, like you were saying, L. So I think there is room for Linux to not only stand out, but to be recognizable for what it is. One of the things that you guys kept mentioning, and it makes me laugh because I actually ran into this over Thanksgiving, was we keep talking about how, you know, it's free. And when I started talking to my family about that, and like, you know, I don't have to pay for licenses. I don't have to, you know, go and buy the special hardware for it. One of my tias was like, oh, I, mija, you know, you can't afford this. Like, I can help you. And then trying to explain that it's not about the money, even though I just said it was, was really comical. But the fact that you don't pay for it isn't necessarily true. Look at something like RHEL, Red Hat Enterprise. You have to pay for that. You have to pay for SUSE Enterprise. And you ultimately have to pay for instances on AWS or Azure or whatever. It's not necessarily free to the end user. Well, even to the desktop, we have things like Zorin OS or Elementary that are trying to shake things up with the um, with the model for payment for desktop operating systems as well. And ultimately, I think it's a good thing that people can ask for money in open source software, even if it's not necessarily required, we should be trying to get away from the idea that this is free as in beer for everything, just because people do need to make a living, right? Well, yeah, and people need to see value in something. If something's free, then it must be rubbish. That's kind of the attitude that I've had from people. Yeah, I've heard the same thing in a lot of places. The, uh, well, it's free, so how good can it be? All right, maybe I'm going to show a little bit of ignorance here, but it's okay. We're here to learn, right? One of the things that I've always understood with RHEL is that I'm not so much paying for Linux, but I'm paying for the support behind it, right? Which I never understood when I was working at Rackspace as a sysad, and so they're calling me to fix their system, even though they've paid for a RHEL license. So can one of you kind of educate me on where that split is? I think the split is with RHEL, and I'm not an expert on this, but that the source code is freely available, and that's why you end up with things like CentOS, which ultimately got bought by Red Hat. But let's just uh, go back to the time when that hadn't happened. So you can take the source code, but you have to strip out the trademarks for it, and that's why they have to call it something different. But you're paying for the binaries of it, and also you're kind of forced to buy a bit of support, and that's on different levels, right up to you can have an engineer on site within two or three hours or something, but you have to pay top dollar for that. But the the lowest support tier, I think, is maybe just like phone and email support. Uh, Drew, you must know more about this than me. Um, well, my professional work in the MSP space was more Microsoft-focused, to be completely honest. So I never actually had an opportunity to buy a license. But from the license sheets that I did look at, that is correct. And it's the same thing when you pay Canonical for support. You're, you're buying time that you can call in, write in, chat and get problems solved, or even down to having an engineer SSH into your system, or like you said, come out and do hands-on work. And that, all of that 
costs money. You've got to pay support staff. You've got to fund the operation. And ultimately, that's what ends up funding these companies in a large way. And, you know, a lot of them have other deals outside of just support, like um, Canonical signed a deal with, uh, what is it, BT, British Telephone? Uh, British Telecom, yeah. And that was just last year. So there are differing revenue streams for these you know, more commercial corporate offerings of Linux. And, you know, we can even get down into something like Oracle, although I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah, which is just a, a repackaging of Red Hat. Because it's open source, you can do that as long as, as I said, you take the trademarks out and you can add your own trademarks in because there's nothing stopping you selling free software. It sounds like a strange thing to say because of this free and free problem that we have in English. But take something like Ardor, which is a digital audio workstation bit of software, which you can freely install on a lot of Linux distros. But if you want to download the binary, the pre-compiled binary for macOS or Windows, you have to pay a small amount for it. You can take that source code and build it yourself if you want to, if you're so inclined. But that is the business model of Ardor. Well, and even beyond that, L, to your point about support, you can install CentOS and actually purchase a RHEL license for it and convert your CentOS into a fully licensed RHEL instance. So there are just tons of ways that people can monetize these things. It's just an ever-changing, ever-evolving open-source world. So just when I think I've wrapped my head around it, it evolves, and it's almost like the rules changed, yet they stayed the same. It's very hard to understand being involved in it. So I completely understand why it's so hard for people outside to know what it is that we're talking about. One of the things that really makes me excited about Linux and something that I try to impart on people when I'm talking about it is the communal aspect. So we have these corporate entities like Red Hat and Canonical, but there's also the gigantic community that is kind of over top of them or underneath them, depending on how you look at it that to me are the true lifeblood of what makes Linux Linux. And when I try to talk about that with people, the way I kind of explain it is you have these groups of people who some want to scratch an itch, some want to fill a void, some just really like playing with code and being creative. And the community is really driving the whole movement forward for open source and Linux altogether in that it's not necessarily about making money. It's not necessarily about creating some platform that is going to be 90% market share or what have you. It's about the fun and the joy and the love of computing. And that's really where I found Linux and why I came to love it. Those are some of my favorite stories to tell my family. For the last half of 2019, Linux Academy was cool enough to sponsor me hosting Hacker Family Dinner in my community, where we would just buy pizzas and invite people to come in and start building the roots of a community where, hey, I'm having problem, you know, installing Void on this laptop. Can you guys help me? Or I'm playing Hack the Box on this end. Or somebody else who was a Windows admin but looking to transition into Linux is coming in. And they're just like, oh, okay, so then you guys sell them a product. I'm like, we don't sell them anything. We just sit down and start 
teaching and helping. And it was really hard for them to try to figure out, well, what's your business model then? How are you making money by buying people pizza? And we're like, eventually that happens. And sometimes they come to us because we were a community, but that's never been the focus. And I see that everywhere with, you know, Canonical and their dev apps and, you know, the OpenShift people for Red Hat doing the same thing and teaching workshops. It's been really nice to see that grow and kind of just start changing the way that I'm viewing tech. Right. And the people who really get into this communal aspect, a lot of times will transition into things like sysadmins and coders and developers and various other aspects of creation that can find work in the market space. But that's not the overall goal of Linux. It's not, oh, we're, we're creating this thing to make money. I mean, Linus Torvald's essentially built it in his basement as a hobby project and released it to the world. And it's kind of continued ever since, right? Yeah, he did it just to see if he could do it. Exactly. Which goes back to that scratching an itch thing. And that, I suppose, is a way you can explain to people. I don't think I've ever done that, though, but maybe I should start. I should explain to people that everything on a computer or a phone is made of code, and some people just write that code just because they want to. It's not because they're looking to sell that app or whatever. They just have a problem and they want to solve it. And if they release that code as open source, then other people can help them with it and improve it and build a community around it. That's been one of the coolest parts to watch for me is watching people step up and kind of grow and develop new projects. At Texas Cyber Summit, I was working on trying to figure out binary conversions and hexadecimals, and I asked one of our community members, Nunix, to help me out. And then he's just like, oh, yeah, I was working on writing a conversion tool and this project and kind of just mentioned it. And then a week later, he's like, hey, I'm about done with it. I'm about to push the source code up to GitHub. And I'm going, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, I've just been working it out over the week. This has been really fun. And it was it was just a project that is now available to the community that he developed just because it was interesting and it made his brain tick. So I think that's really what some of the best projects that come out end up being. I think you've got to have two very different approaches to explaining what open source is as a concept and what Linux is, depending on whether the person you're talking to already is into IT and computers. If they are heavily into Windows or Mac OS, then I think it's much easier to explain to them the benefits of open source. Whereas if it's someone who is just an end user and just uses their computers as an appliance. I think you have to take a different tack with them. I think you have to start from real basic principles about what an operating system is. To some extent, I feel it's a little bit pointless with those people. Whereas if someone is already a power user, I think it's just easier to go after them. The way to approach it is... Take a step back. You know, when I first started, my title was technology evangelist. And I think all of us sometimes act like that, like we want to convert them. So we start telling them about how their Android phones and their Chromebooks are already Linux. So, you know, they might as well just start using Linux. When on the other side, they could look at us and be like, "Okay, but my Chromebook and my phone work. Why don't you just use these instead? It's a fair question. So maybe if we approach the explanation with a little bit of humility and a little bit of, you know what, it's curious, it makes me think, it makes me learn, I enjoy it, then they would be excited for us instead of approaching it with, well, I enjoy this and this is better and you should do this instead. 
Sure, but there are definitely some things that the IT power user type can really appreciate about Linux that they're probably not getting with either Mac OS or Windows currently. And some of them are really compelling, especially for people who enjoy making their personal computer really, you know, actually personal. And there are a lot of things that we can do that those folks on other platforms just can't. Things like customization of the desktop using different desktop environments, different distros, not to mention that there are implications for things like security and privacy, right? Yeah, privacy is something that is becoming more and more important to normal non-IT people, I think. They're starting to become aware of Facebook and Google and all of the tracking. But I think ultimately you have to be able to give them a viable alternative straight away. You have to be able to put something that is a product in front of them, something that's a finished product that's going to work properly. Otherwise, you're going to lose them very quickly. Well, sure. And I think that's where products like elementary OS come in because they do feel very polished and very finished. And, you know, we can add all kinds of distros onto that list like Pop OS or Ubuntu even and say this is something that a standard user coming from another operating system could really enjoy and not bulk at. You bring up a great point, and this actually just happened to me this weekend. A friend of mine bought a laptop for her daughter, and guess what? She did the same thing I did. She bought an underpowered thing because it was on sale, (laughs) and she brought it to me, and she said, hey, didn't you say that something like this happened to you? And we kind of started talking about my experience, and she let me actually wipe it and install Linux on it, and I was able to kind of walk her kid through it. But the cool thing was that I sat her down, and I never explained a terminal. I didn't explain anything about Linux. I just said, hey, here's the start menu. Here's how you access games. Here's Firefox. Here's Google Docs. Go. I didn't worry about whether the OS was going to work because I knew I was putting her on a platform that was going to be solid for her. One thing that I really do love about Linux, and it kind of ties into buying something like an underpowered laptop, is that Linux can help you avoid vendor lock-in. Say you have a laptop of that age and that power, and after two or three years, it's going to feel kind of stale with something like Windows on it. Whereas with Linux, rather than buying a whole new machine, you can take steps to still use that same hardware but with software that's maybe geared a little more towards something of that age and that power. Well, yeah, not to mention people who've got old laptops that are no longer supported, especially if it's a Mac. And those old Macs that are now not supported anymore actually run Linux really well. And so the the whole kind of bringing hardware back to life aspect of Linux which isn't necessarily very exciting and new because you tend to go for lighter weight distros or whatever. But that, I think, is a real practical way that you can explain what it is. You can find someone's old laptop and say, oh, give me that for half an hour and then give it back to them perfectly functional again. And that can really show them the power of Linux. We talked about that in a previous episode. I had that old Mac that's just been sitting on a shelf because for some reason I thought that it was going to be really difficult to put Linux on it because I keep hearing about proprietary drivers and the hardware and 
I was amazed that it was literally put the USB in and go through uh, kicking Linux just the way I normally do. Like the drivers were already there because I guess there's so many people using Linux to bring life back to these old Macs. Well, yeah, there used to be quite a lot of developers of Linux and open source software using those Macs with Linux on them. And that's why it works pretty well. Same with ThinkPads. ThinkPads are very popular with developers, hence their support for them being excellent. But another really practical example that we talked about on the last episode was Tails and showing them how they can be super private with that. Oh, sure. And not only can you run Tails for privacy, you can do it off of a USB stick. So even if the person doesn't want to get rid of Windows, but they do want to play around in that realm and have those privacy protections, there's nothing stopping them from just keeping a Tails USB around and using it when they need it. It's not an either-or situation. Well, yeah, and it's the same with other distros, Ubuntu, Fedora, or whatever. You can almost always run them off a USB stick, so you can at least show people without doing anything to their hardware. Some people get a bit wary about that. What are you doing to my laptop? You just have to say, trust me, it'll be fine. And that one trick, as it were, was what really impressed me in the first place, that you could run these systems live and have a proper operating system that was not touching the hard drive at all. So hypothetically here, um, let's say that someone had a few teenagers who paid attention to what they did for a living and their school was to block access to things based on software, not firewall rules or network rules. They could hypothetically be running live USBs at their schools to be able to to access and do whatever they want to do on the school systems and bypass the Windows install completely. Just so y'all know. Well, and they could hypothetically look quite cool to their friends while they're doing it. Yep, and teaching their their technical evangelist is what they are, Joe. They're spreading the word. <laughs> hypothetical. <laughs> hypothetical. Technical evangelist. Yeah. <laughs> Notice, choose Linux does not condone shirking rules to get around what your school no. wants you to do. <laughs> Always ask permission. That's our official policy. That's right. Well, and there's also a good mention for dual booting. I was a dual booter for many, many years, up until the point when I really got virtualization going the way I wanted it to run. And to this day, my wife has a dual booted laptop because she wants to run Ubuntu, but she also needs to be able to use things like Photoshop. So her laptop is split in two. She's got Linux and Windows, and she can use the right tool for the job at the right time. Yeah, I always encourage a dual boot, at least at first. And with Chromebooks becoming as popular as they are these days, I think I would be remiss without mentioning Crestini. I had a friend come to me recently and ask for some help getting Linux installed on their Chromebook just so that they could get Steam installed so they could play a game. And it was super easy to get that up and running. So there's always the option of running Linux apps on a Chromebook as well. All right, well, I don't think any of us actually answered the question of what do we say when people ask us what we do for a living. Okay, you guys are going to have to hold back the laughter because mine is cheesy, but it's sincere. When people ask what I do for a living, I tell them I help change people's lives. I help people figure out how to get started in tech when they're ready to take that leap. So for a living, I help people find their first steps into the open source world. That's not laughable or cheesy. I think that's uh, very honorable. I would agree. That is a wonderful thing to say. Yeah. I just say I talk rubbish with my friends about stuff that I'm really interested in and somehow get paid for it. (laughs) 
No, not really. I um, have to try and explain what a podcast is and how it's like like the radio, but you can listen to it whenever you want. And it's just, it's a, I've stopped saying it. I just say I work in IT and that usually uh, shuts the conversation down. People are not really interested. For me, it depends on the age range. Uh, if it's somebody who's, you know, Around my age or younger, I will say, oh, I work in podcasting. If it's, you know, 40s plus, a lot of times I'll say broadcasting. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, it's fairly similar enough where they understand the concept, even if the delivery method is different. But ultimately, what I'll say is I've got my dream job talking about Linux, using Linux with other people who are also in the Linux community. And I do that all day, every day. Yeah, and we occasionally get to go to conferences and meet new people who are into it. You more than us, Al. It's enjoyable every single time, let me tell you guys. No sarcasm there? No, total sincerity. <laughs> <laughs> what, well, all those plane trips? Oh, I don't think I could do it. If you ever meet me and you see my suitcase, it is completely covered in stickers from different conferences. And I can tell you every single person that handed me their sticker and the story behind it. It's kind of a way to keep me motivated when I'm about to sit in an airport for four hours waiting for my next plane. <laughs> well, we'd better wrap it up then. You can go to chooselinux.show slash subscribe for all the ways to get future episodes and chooselinux.show slash contact to get in touch with us. And remember, you can always reach us on Twitter. I'm at L underscore O underscore punk at LO punk. I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at Joe Rissington. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye.